Spending some time reconnecting with nature this summer? Here's a camping hack from L.L. Bean to make your next trip the best yet. Tired of your tentmate's flashlights shining in your eyes in camp? Bring an empty half-gallon milk jug or clear water bottle. Simply strap a headlamp around it, and it becomes a soft white lantern for everyone to see the light. For more camping hacks, visit youtube.com slash L.L. Bean. L.L. Bean. Be an outsider. Welcome, everybody, to the latest edition of the Pound for Pound podcast here on the Fight Game Media Network. This is your host, the OG Rob Silver, the original great Rob Silver, and today we have a packed program. We have, I'm going to recap several of the fights that happened Saturday night, Sunday, Saturday morning, Saturday night, April 8th. We had Four major cards from all over the world, Tokyo, Japan, San Antonio, Texas, Newark, New Jersey, Las Vegas. I mean, no, it was not Las Vegas, California. We had cards in California, San Antonio, Newark, New Jersey, and Tokyo, Japan that we will be talking about. I will once again give a Q&A session, this time a brief session. Only got a couple of questions this week, and... I'm glad because we have a huge fight recap portion of the podcast. And then we will end the podcast with my part two historical overview of my second greatest fighter of the last 45 years. And we're still looking at the at the early career of pretty boy Floyd Mayweather. We'll be looking at his 135 and 140 pound title reigns as part of his historical overview of his incredible career, part two of his career. But before we get into the recap of Saturday Night's Fights, I've been getting a lot of great feedback for the Patreon-exclusive podcast I've been doing on the Fight Game Media Network. The link is in the description for $5 a month. You get to hear my historical overview of Muhammad Ali's career, a 10-part series, The Life and Times of Muhammad Ali, in which I break down 10 of the biggest fights of his career. I do a rebroadcast in which I ask the listeners to go to the time of the YouTube footage and mute the YouTube uh, fight that I'm talking about, the fight I'm talking about, and I will re-announce the fight from then until the end. The first two parts, we looked at his May 1965 first-round knockout of Sonny Liston and his November 1965 12-round virtuoso performance against former two-time heavyweight champion of the world, Floyd Patterson. I'm recording part three sometime this week, which will come out next week. And the third installment of The Life and Times of Muhammad Ali, in which I take a look at his November 1966 performance against Cleveland Williams in Houston, Texas. Also on the Patreon, you have other projects I've done. My uh, 10-part series last year on the greatest upsets in boxing history, as well as uh, Gary Gonzalez and I's, we did a four-part series on the Hulu a docu- uh, dramatic series on Mike Tyson's career. We did that last week, last year, 
last September, and that's available on the Patreon exclusive Fight Game Media podcast. The link is in the description. Now, on to Saturday night's and Saturday morning's fight. First, we go to Tokyo. One of the best Japanese fighters I've ever seen. He's top 10, and he's closing in on on number 5 is Kenshiro Taraji who was supposed to fight in a unification 108-pound light flyweight title fight with the WBO champion, Jonathan Gonzalez. Uh, Taraji has the WBC and WBA version, and he was supposed to fight Jonathan Gonzalez, but Gonzalez came down with pneumonia. That fight had to be canceled, and in came a late substitute from America, Anthony Olasquaga, and Olasquaga only's had five professional fights. He wasn't ready for this. And the man showed a lot of promise, a lot of potential, but his promoters, his management might have done more damage than good by him being in this fight against an incredible fighter. Taraji has one of the best jabs in the business. He does everything off that totem pole of a left jab. He pushes it out there. He won't stop, and kudos to the announcing team on ESPN Plus that did a phenomenal job and they blow away the regular ESPN team. Now, I'm not going to cause any controversy over here because everybody knows how I feel about the ESPN announcing team. I'm not a, I'm probably uh, the biggest opponent for that team, but I'm a proponent of the team that was announcing the fight for ESPN Plus Saturday morning in the legendary New York City sportscaster, Bruce Beck, who's done every sport, you name it, he's announced every sport. He's been on, he's been announcing since I was 14, 15 years old. For the last 40 years, Bruce Beck has been a staple of New York City sportscasting, whether it's being, doing the sports reports on WNBC Channel 4, or doing um, games for MSG, Showtime, etc. The man has done it all. Well, he did a phenomenal job with the best up-and-coming color commentator in the sport today, Jamel Herring. They did a phenomenal job, and Herring broke down Taraji's incredible style, how he's a boxer. He's a boxer who throws punches with intent, who does everything off that great jab, and he's got a beautiful right cross. He battered Taraji for the first six rounds, knocked him down early, and it was all Taraji. It was a beautiful counter cross that dropped uh, Alasquaga early in the fight. And after six rounds, I had Taraji winning every round. But Anthony Alasquaga showed a lot of heart and grit, and in round seven and eight, stood toe-to-toe with Taraji, and I had him winning round seven and eight. Then early in round nine, Taraji stepped it up, landed a brilliant five-pound knock, knock combination that damn near knocked Alasquaga out of the ring. And kudos to the referee. Taraji had given Alasquaga a, a lot of punishment throughout the fight. Alasquaga first six rounds took a beating. Now, I give him credit, round seven and eight. He came back, and he was given more than he got. But still, 
the body punching, the constant uh, jab in his face had done a lot of damage to Taraji. And we, I mean, to Taraji, to Alasquaga. And when Taraji dropped him, Kenshiro dropped him in the early in the ninth round. Referee Mark Nelson stopped it immediately because he's, you know, the referee is uh, the best. He is the best arbiter of the punishment a fighter's taking in the ring because he's right there. He's seen the whole fight. He's seen the damage. And there were a couple of moments to, uh, last night, yesterday. In, um, I'm recording this Sunday. You're hearing this Wednesday. There was a couple of cases saying that where I can't blame the referee for doing what he did. The referee has to take the safety of the fighter first into consideration. So hopefully... Kenshiro and La Bamba will go ahead and reschedule that fight. And it'd be an interesting fight. Gonzalez has the type of style that could give Kenshiro problems. Gonzalez is a is a shifty boxer with a lot of movement. I think that's the type of guy that will give Kenshiro problems. But as long as Kenshiro Taraji does everything behind that jab, he is going to be an impossible, impossible out for anybody at 108 and 112 pounds. NFL Sunday Ticket is now on YouTube and YouTube TV, which means that it just got easier to be an NFL fan, even if you live far away. Like, maybe you like the Bears, but you're hibernating in Panthers territory. But with NFL Sunday Ticket, your out-of-market team is never more than a short distance away, specifically the distance from you to your remote control. NFL Sunday Ticket. Now on YouTube and YouTube TV. Go to youtube.com slash presale to get $50 off. Terms and embargoes apply. Offer ends 919. No refund. Subscription auto renews. What's up? It's Kaylee Cuoco. When it comes to travel, we all have a happy place. I just went to my happy place. I just went to Maui and it was truly amazing. Priceline has always been about getting you to your happy place for a happy price with deals you really can't find anywhere else. Like up to 60% off select hotels in Costa Rica or five-star hotels for two-star prices in Cabo. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Speaking of 112 pounds, Bam Rodriguez defeated Christian Gonzalez to win one of the Alphabet Soup sanctioning bodies, 112 lightweight title uh, titles, title belt. Um, I believe it was a WBO. I don't care because I don't recognize these uh, clown ass uh, sanctioning bodies. They're all criminal cartels, in my opinion. Anyway, uh, Gonzalez is a, a cute boxer, you know, not a lot of power. And Bam Rodriguez won a convincing 12 round decision. He, he landed the most effective punches of the fight as Gonzalez was trying to be cute but there's no pop to his power and he doesn't throw combinations he was fighting safety first Bam Rodriguez wins and what's next for Bam Rodriguez I wouldn't mind seeing Taraji Kenshiro move up and fight Bam Rodriguez if the Gonzalez fight doesn't come through or even better another alphabet soup champion at 112 pounds Sonny Edwards, who, in my opinion, is the second best defensive fighter in the world. We'll talk about the best later on in the podcast. He's got the type of style that will bring the best out of Jesse Bam Rodriguez because Bam Rodriguez would have to 
hunt him down, go to the body, cut the ring off. Edwards gives you a lot of movement. He's hard to hit. He throws combinations. This would be a very intriguing fight. And I know Sonny wants to fight. And I know Bam wants to fight. Eddie Hearn, get the fight done, baby. Get the fight done. Earlier in the card, this is from San Antonio when Bam Rodriguez won the main event. Let's give kudos to Marlon Tapalis. Marlon Tapalis was a huge underdog. I think he was a 5-1 to one underdog. And he defeated Mirajan Akhmadaliev. Akhmadaliev. I never say Akhmadaliev's name correctly, but I finally did. Murajan Akhmadaliev, uh, people call him MJ. I only recognize three MJs, Michael Jackson, Michael Jordan, Mary J. Blige. Anybody else with an MJ is a fraud. And Akhmadali, if I've already, I've always said, is a fraud. He never gave Danny, uh, Daniel Roman a rematch. He refused to fight Stephen Fulton to unify the super bantamweight title. So now he loses both his belts to Marlon Tapalis. And now Tapalis wants to fight the winner of Inoue Fulton. That will happen in July. And he deserves it. He got a deserving decision. It was a close decision. I'm not going to say if... Akhmadaliev would have won. It would have been a robbery because there was a lot of very close rounds. Tapalis wins by split decision. Akhmadaliev, get the fuck out of here, you ducker. You, you, you motherfucking duck. Now, that was the San Antonio card. Oh, another uh, uh, impressive victory. Raymond Ford came back from being unimpressive in his last fight to totally dominate and drop Jesse Magdaleno. And Magdaleno has a win over the legendary Nonito Donaire, future Hall of Famer. So Magdaleno, former world champion, is no joke. And Raymond Ford was impressive. He threw combinations. He dropped the tough Magdaleno twice to win a, a runaway 12-round decision. And to continue his climb to a title shot at featherweight. So a great win by Raymond Ford. Now, um... That was the San Antonio card. Let's let's go to the let me go to the California card first. And the main event. We'll just talk about the main event. I've been saying forever on this podcast that Sebastian Fundora is a severely flawed fighter. He gets away with a lot of his flaws by being six foot five and being six to eight inches taller than everybody in the division. And so he weight bullies you. He pushes you. He uses that enormous, gigantic height of his to win fights. But his defense is non-existent. And he's really not a great boxer. He's a very good brawler, but he's not a great boxer. And finally, those flaws came to fruition in what I predicted would happen eventually with him. Now, I didn't make a prediction on this fight because I didn't talk about these fights last week on the podcast. The only prediction I made was on Twitter with uh, Shakur Stevenson, and I'll talk about that later on, but let's get to this fight. First two rounds, Fandura tried to be cute. He tried to work on his jab, and I thought Mendoza, who was investing in the body early and smartly because when you fight a guy that tall he's got skinny fucking legs if you're six foot five 154 pounds you got matchsticks for legs which fundora has and 
Mendoza banged the body for the first two rounds. He made an investment, and I gave him the first two rounds. Then Fenduro went back to his old style. He started crowding Mendoza, taking him up against the ropes. And rounds three to six was easily Fenduro as he was landing combinations. He was landing hella, hella fied body shots. Now, even though Mendoza was losing, he was still going to the body with his occasional offense, but he was being blitzed and outworked outpunched, outmanned by Fendura from rounds four, three to six. So after six rounds, I had Fendura up 58, 56, four rounds to two. The beginning of the seventh round. Now, what Fendura was having success inside was throwing vicious uppercuts. He was landing, especially to the body. Well, Fendura made the same type of mistake Buster Douglas made in his fight versus Evander Holyfield 33 years ago when Evander knocked him out in the third round. Fendura threw a, a right uppercut from way outside. And they were outside. They weren't inside. He threw it from way outside. And Mendoza brilliantly counted it with a beautiful picture-perfect left hook that knocked Fendura out on his feet. He was out. He was out on his feet. He didn't go down. He was concussed right there. Then Mendoza landed another right cross left hook combination that bounced Fendura's head off the canvas. Fendura knew where he was, but his legs were paralyzed. He could not get up. He's counted out. Brian Mendoza with the knockout of the year. There's been a lot of great knockouts this year, but I don't see any knockout beating this one because it was a major upset. It halted Fendura's momentum. And it brought Mendoza to the forefront as far as who's going to fight Charlo next when he finally fights because Charlo was supposed to fight Zoo twice. Both fights have been delayed. Zoo's talking about taking another opponent in June before he fights Charlo. So you got Tim Zoo, you've got Brian Mendoza at the top of the pecking order now to fight against. Charlo. Now, you know, I wouldn't mind. They they both fight for Showtime. They both are PBC fighters. How about Zoo versus Mendoza in June? The winner to either fight Charlo or to become the vague, the, the real world 154-pound champion if Charlo can't fight. It's, been, it's going on 18 months. Charlo hasn't fought. The Charlo twins have not fought at all. So I don't want to hear people telling me, oh, the older, uh, the, 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 the other Charlo should get a shot at 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 uh Canelo. He has done nothing to earn it because he hasn't fought. Neither of these guys are fought in over a year. Let's get this bullshit the fuck out of here. Let's get these guys in the ring. Let's stop the nonsense. Anyway, huge win by Brian Mendoza and by, by Mendoza knocking out the undefeated Fendora and putting himself right up there with Tim Zhu as far as Charlo's next major opponent. For the undisputed 154-pound championship, Brian Mendoza is the pound-for-pound fighter of the week. So, great victory out there in the Punch Bowl in California. I hate that fucking nickname that uh, Mar Ronaldo came up. But anyway, uh, great win by Mendoza as he continues his mercurial climb to the top of the 154-pound division. Now... 
on to the uh, Newark, New Jersey card. Before we talk about the main event, we had uh, Keyshawn Davis looking very impressive in his ninth-round stoppage of Anthony Yigit. It was a one-sided beating. Yigit, former world title contender, uh, great test for Keyshawn as they are moving him rapidly. This is only his seven for eight fight. Keyshawn has all the tools in the world, and he wants to fight Frank Martin. Uh, he's not ready for Frank Martin. And anybody who's a loyal listener to the show knows just how much I love Frank Martin. I think he's a generational talent. Keyshawn Davis still has the potential. Keep. I like how top rank is matching him. You put him in with another world-class type fighter you know he beat up anthony yigit uh top rank has a lot of lightweights in its stable put him in one 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 of those guys that frank martin fight's not happening anytime soon because frank martin's a pbc fighter managed by the great errol spence okay now if you do get the errol spence bud crawford fight you could easily make a frank martin uh Keyshawn Davis fight if it's a co-promotion. That's the only way that fight could happen. That could be one of the main supporting fights on the card. We will see. We saw Jared Anderson move up, and once again, Tim Bradley is a buffoon. Comparing George Arias to Mike Tyson, Jared Anderson's opponent was George Arias, 5'11". First round, Tim Bradley. Oh, I've watched tape of this guy. He reminds me of Mike Tyson. How? How? The man has no power. The man has become a runner. Mike never ran a day in his life. What the fuck is he talking about? Timothy Bradley, shut up. Shut up. And this time, there was no Andre Ward. So you heard the madness, the insane talk by both Joe Tessitore and Tim Bradley. And add in that incompetent Mark Kriegel. And, oh, my God. Oh, man. Those those uh th- th- those uh viewers from outside the United States were lucky. They got Christina Poncher, Poncher and Jamel Herring's call of the fights, and Jamel Herring continues to be an up and coming great color commentator. In my opinion, right now, because Roy Jones doesn't isn't an active color commentator, the best two active color commentators today are Raul Marquez from Showtime and Jamel Herring for ESPN Plus, ESPN International, and Top Rank. Everybody else is horrible. Andre Ward is great when he wants to be, but he's brought down to the level of the incompetency of his broadcast partners, Tim Bradley and Joe Tessabor. Now, uh, Jared Anderson did whatever he wanted to. He took his time, everything off that jab, and he batted and beat Arias for three rounds. They didn't let Arias come out for the fourth round. Jared Anderson with another win. And now it's time for Jared Anderson to fight world-class opposition. No more of these trial horses. It's time for him to fight a Frank Sanchez, who won by not first-round knockout over I don't. I've never seen this bum march before on Saturday night. I want to see him against a Andy Ruiz, a Joseph Parker. He needs to fight one of those guys. It's time for him to step up. 
Jared Anderson, I've said this on the podcast before, has the potential to be the next great heavyweight after the Usyk's, Joshua's, Wilder's, and Fury's retire. He has all the ability. He's got a great left jab. He throws combinations. He's got beautiful power in that right hand. But he has to step up his competition. He's got to stop fighting these cab drivers that they're throwing in. Now, Georgia Reyes is not a cab driver, but he had no shot in the world against Anderson, and he ran out of fear in that fight. Undefeated fighter that who himself had beaten stiff after stiff. This was his first real competition, and he laid an egg. He reminds me of Mike Tyson. Man, Tim Bradley, get the fuck out of here. And now to the final fight of the evening. Shakur Stevenson, and I've said this for three, four years on the podcast. On several podcasts I've done. I've only done this now two, three years, but since 2020, the Pound for Pound podcast. But before my other podcasts, the other two boxing podcasts I used to do, and on Twitter and in my articles on FightGameMediaNetwork.com, I have told everybody who has listened that Shakur Stevenson is the best defensive fighter in the world and the next Pound for Pound fighter in the world he's going to be the number one pound for pound fighter within the next two years i've made this prediction and there's another prediction that i made last year that's coming to fruition also looks before i get into that other prediction shakur stevenson saturday night fought brilliantly he stood in the middle of the ring and he fought like floyd mayweather and Pernell Whitaker used to do where they would stand in in the middle of the ring, land combinations, counter off your aggression and make you miss. Yoshino had no shot in the world. There was actually so-called experts talking about, oh, Shakur's not taking this lightly. He's taking this too lightly. He's talking too much smack. Yoshina could could upset him. No, No way in the world. Like I said on Twitter, the only way Yoshina had a shot was if Shakur came in the ring handcuffed and blindfolded. It wasn't happening. Shakur, from the very beginning, was landing beautiful combinations. Round two, he dropped Yoshina with a picture-perfect left cross. Joe Testator was calling those left cross left hooks. Let's stop with the bullshit. Shakur Stevens is a softball fighter. When he throws a straight left hand, it's a left cross, not a left hook. I'm tired of you announcers erroneously calling crosses hooks. Not every punch is a hook. Then he dropped him again at the end of the fifth round with a beautiful, beautiful, picture-perfect combination. Beginning of the sixth round, well, before the sixth round began, at the end, throughout uh, the one-minute break in between round five and six, referee went over to the corner and told Yoshida's uh cornerman there. He's only giving him one more round. He's taking too much punishment. Yoshina was missing and getting hit at will by Shakur. Round six, early in the, in the round, Shakur landed a beautiful uppercut. And referee stepped in and said, it's over. It's over. People were crying. Even Tim Bradley was crying. Oh, why did he stop the fight early? Yoshina had no shot at winning. He was getting hit at will. The referee saved his career. Because, well, let's say he goes 12 rounds. He takes a Jeff Lacey-type beating at the hands of Joe Kazagi, a Felix Trinidad-type beating at the hands of Bernard Hopkins. What happened to those two fighters? They were never the same. Now, Yoshina's not as good as Lacey, and Trinidad is a legend. But if Yoshina wants to continue to have fights in Tokyo, in, the, in, the, in his homeland of Japan, 
fighting for the Japanese lightweight and light welterweight titles and um, having, you know, a, a career. That was the best decision was to stop the fight because Shakur was landing combinations. Shakur was looking like Shakur was looking like a, a prime Floyd Mayweather, the Floyd Mayweather I'll be talking about later on in the podcast of my historical overview. Shakur can't be hit. Shakur Stevenson, you, you, if you're an aggressive fighter, you can't beat him. In order to beat Shakur Stevenson, you have to find a way to outbox him, and that's uh, uh, damn near impossible. But anyway, let's talk about what's next for Shakur Stevenson. He's now the mandatory contender for the winner of next month's fight between the undisputed lightweight champion, Devin Haney, and Vasily Lomachenko. Last year, I made the prediction, and so far, I'm halfway home. Devin Haney signed a four-fight contract with top rank. I'd said he'd beat Cambosos in those first two fights, and this was before he even stepped in the ring with Cambosos. He did. He beat Cambosos convincingly twice. I said the third fight would be against Lomachenko. That's next month. Then I said if he beats Lomachenko, the fourth fight and final fight of his contract with top rank will be against Shakur Stevenson. Well... There you go. And I'm not going to mention any more because I want to save my prediction for the Haney Lomachenko fight next month when they do fight. But right now, so far, so good as far as my prediction that Haney's fourth fight will be against against Shakur. We'll talk about that more. Shakur Stevenson, to beat Shakur Stevenson, and we're talking about the Javante Davis's, Devin Haney's, Vasily Lomachenko's, Frank Martin of the world you have to fight the fight of your life now do those guys have the potential many of them do many of them are that skill and and Brian Garcia's uh, favor is that he's got destructive one punch knockout power same thing with Javante Davis Um, I Javante and Ryan cannot outbox Shakur Stevenson but they will always be a threat as long as the fight goes because of that one-punch knockout power. We will see. I won't do any predictions until those fights are actually made. So the lightweight division right now is the hottest division in boxing because in two weeks, well, actually 10 days from now as you hear this podcast, you've got the, and next week's podcast, I will have my prediction of the Javante Davis-Ryan Garcia pay-per-view fight. April 22nd, you've got Garcia and Tank. May 20th, you've got Lomachenko and Haney. And this fall, you've got Shakur, hopefully against the winner of Haney and Lomachenko. Now on to my question and answer session. For those who want me to answer their questions on the podcast, you go to Twitter, hashtag AskRobSilver, which is hashtag A-S-K-R-O-B-S-I-L-V-A. I'll answer any and all questions. It doesn't have to be boxing. It could be anything else. I got two questions this week, and both from LL School K. First question, if Benavides can't get the Canelo fight, should he move up to light heavyweight? He'd be good work for Joe Smith, in my opinion. My thoughts. Benavides is a big fighter. He's still growing. He's young. He definitely will be a light heavyweight eventually. I need him to fight Canelo. I need him to fight Canelo. Canelo's talking about fighting Bavol again after he dispatches Ryder in a couple of weeks. 
in a month. No, actually, um, uh, you know, um, less than four weeks from now. Uh, I want better VS to stay at 168 and fight Canelo and force a fight with Canelo. I don't want to see him fight 175 just yet. Not yet. Not yet. Because when he gets there, he's going to have a lot of great opportunities before, be, between versus a Baval and a better BF. And as far as a hypothetical fight with Joe Smith, he'd put Joe Smith in a hospital. Joe Smith is overrated. Joe Smith is going to live off that win over a 96-year-old Bernard Hopkins for the rest of his career. But as Joe Smith showed against Arthur Bedebiev, he's not a great fighter. He's a good fighter. He's a solid fighter. He's not a world-class uh, a fighter. Sorry. All right. Other question from LL. I feel like a lot of fighters are being protected when they should fight when aren't. Let me reread this again. I feel like a lot of fighters are being protected. When should a fighter start getting real competition? In my opinion, it should be after 10 fights. It depends on the maturity of a fighter, the level of of talent in a fighter. Pernell Whitaker and Evander Holyfield first won world titles in their 12th or 13th fight. You saw in the Olympics... In 1984, my father made a point. Those two guys are already great. Vasily Lomachenko fought for a world title in his second pro fight. He lost that fight, but he was already proven to have world-class ability. Robesy Ramirez recently won a title in less than 10 pro fights. He already has that pedigree of being a two-time Olympic gold medalist, just like Vasily Lomachenko. Guillermo Ringadao also won a title early in his career because he had been a legendary Cuban Amateur. Depends on the pedigree, the maturity, and level of talent in the fighter. Some guys never have it. Edgar Belanga, he could have 50 pro fights. He's one-dimensional. He's got no defense, and he swings for the fences. He will never be a great fighter. Doesn't matter. Jared Anderson will has now has 14 fights. As we saw last night, he doesn't need to fight these stiffs anymore. It's time for him to step up and fight world-class heavyweights. So it depends on the fighter, LL. Ten, you just can't put a number out there, 10 fights, because some guys, like a Lomachenko, like a Pernell Whitaker, like a Nioa Inoue, were already ready for world-class opposition in less than 10 fights. But great questions, as always, LL. And for those who want their questions asked, answered, Ask Rob Silva. Hashtag A-S-K-R-O-B-S-I-L-V-A on Twitter. And now on to my part two of my historical overview of the 45 greatest fighters of the last uh, 45 years. My number two. Fighter of the last 45 years, Floyd Mayweather. Part one, if you haven't heard, was on last week's podcast. So if you haven't heard this, if you haven't heard that, go back, listen to that. It's at the end of the podcast. And then come back here and listen to part two. And now we begin part two of Floyd Mayweather's historical overview. On April 20th, 2002, the now 25-year-old Floyd moved up to 135 pounds to face the reigning WBC and lineal champion, Jose Luis Castillo. For the first six rounds, Floyd exhibited his trademark defense and counterpunching while dominating the Mexican brawler. Castillo was your prototypical Mexican fighter with an 
incredible chin, chin and stamina. Castillo's pressure began to succeed, and in the second half of the fight, he was able to lure Floyd into exchanges that favored the champion. While I had scored the first six rounds for Floyd, I gave Castillo five of the last six rounds and scored the fight 114-112 for Floyd as both fighters at one point deducted by referee Vic, Vic Draculich due to foul infractions. Many so-called experts claim Castillo was robbed as Floyd deservedly won via unanimous decision to win his second world title. Eight months later, Floyd decisively won the rematch in which he kept the fight at a much safer distance with much fewer inside exchanges. After easily defending the 135-pound title twice in 2003, Floyd moved up to 140 pounds to attempt to set his sights on longtime reigning junior welterweight champion Costa Zoo. While unable to secure a shot at Zoo, Floyd, after defeating 140-pound contenders Demarcus Coley and Henry Brucellis, signed to fight WBC 140-pound popular brawler Arturo Gatti in Mayweather's first ever pay-per-view fight. Gatti, one of the most overrated boxers in the history of the sport, was a one-dimensional brawler who had absolutely no shot at defeating the defensive mastermind Mayweather. On June 25, 2005, in Atlantic City, Mayweather treated Gatti like a bum. Gatti was unable to land anything significant. Gatti was dropped in the first round and took a hellacious beating as he was, as he was no more than a glorified punching bag until he quit in his corner after the sixth round. Floyd. After giving former 140-pound champion Sean Bay Mitchell a one-sided shellacking, vacated his 140-pound title and moved up to the single most talented division in the boxing history, the welterweight division. Part three of my historical overview of my second greatest fighter of the last 45 years will pick up next week with Floyd's April 2006 fight versus the IBF champion Zab Judah. Ladies and gentlemen, once again, I appreciate you for listening. I appreciate those patrons who have subscribed to the Patreon page. I want everybody out there to continue to support boxing. Boxing is right now is in, is in a good state because we have all these great fights coming up. Remember, we've got the Garcia Tank fight in 10 days. We've got Lomachenko Haney in May. We've got to end, you know, fingers crossed. We might have a super fight in June, a fight that we've been looking forward to. I won't jinx it. So continue supporting the sport of boxing. I know we have a love-hate relationship with boxing, but you know what? It is still, in my opinion, the greatest sport ever created. Until next week, everybody out there continue to be blessed. And be a blessing. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlor live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. At Parker, our purpose is simple. 
We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.